by Pearson Harnish, but a huge third down conversion. You got the game on? Yep. On the move, down to the 24-yard line of St. Francis. Who's winning? He, he won't say the score. Laid up and waited for the pass. Short drop Come out on, of the gun. who's winning? Rifles towards the right corner, complete to Vander Cooey, who steps across the plane. Ah, say the damn score. This is the Say the Damn Score podcast with your host, Logan Anderson. Welcome back to the Say the Damn Score podcast. Logan Anderson here bringing you the podcast. Maybe someday I'll have a guest podcaster, but that day has not come. And right now we're going to have a little bit of a a different kind of podcast. Usually we focus on play-by-play and play-by-play broadcasters. Right now we are joined by Eric Merlis. He is the author of I Was There. It is a book written about... Basically, him doing interviews with 65 different sportscasters, sports writers around the country, and getting their top five moments and documenting them all in one place. And Eric, first of all, thanks very much for coming on the podcast. How are you doing today? I'm doing great, Logan. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. So first things first, I followed you on Twitter to see kind of what your media tour was all about, and you have been on just about every single show in the country, big, small, and in between. <laughs> this this might be your smallest one that you've been on so far. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, I doubt that very much. Uh, I'm sure. I, I'm sure that I've done quite a few that are smaller. Uh, I, but as the more I can get the word out about the book, the the better it is, obviously for me and. And, and hopefully for those who hear about it and have a chance to read it. So do you have a vetting process on what you'll go on, or is there no, just uh, if you... No, I am not discerning in any way, shape, or form. Being on so many different shows and podcasts and interviews, is there what is the most common question you've been asked so I can avoid it? Well, I, it's, it's one that it, everyone asks me, and I kind of hate talking about myself. I'd rather focus on the book and, and stories from the book and you know I, my career and all that. But you know, when people ask me what's the most what's the best sporting event I've ever seen, you know, it, it, it's relative obviously to the topic of the book, but it's it's never been about me. And obviously, on on a on a show like this, you know, we're going to get a little deeper into conversation than I do on a on a ten minute interview. Um, and I'm happy to answer that question for obvious, you know, it, that's not a, exactly the most difficult question in the world. It's, but at the same time, uh, you know, I, I like I like sharing other stories. I like talking about my career as opposed to, you know, individual things I've seen. I don't like to compare myself to everybody else. There are a couple interesting things about your career that I'd like to talk about since you kind of went sure. in that direction. You were a longtime statistician. Uh, for broadcast teams, and we've not had a statistician on, and at my level, I've never even come close to having a statistician. What exactly do you do on a day-to-day, game-to-game basis as the statistician for a broadcast? Well, I'll be at courtside or in the broadcast booth or wherever the broadcaster is for that given event, and I'm, I'm the guy that's passing him notes throughout the course of the game. I'm keeping track of all of the stats. I know there are stat systems throughout the arenas and throughout the stadiums, but I'm always doing something by hand, whether it's football or baseball or basketball or hockey, it doesn't matter. I'm keeping track of everything by hand, 
and and I'm keeping you know running t- totals of certain things so that I can quickly look and say that you know for basketball this guy's hit his last five shots or in football he's had five straight runs of over 10 yards or something to that effect and I'm handing the notes to the broadcaster throughout the event um, for football as well as soon as as soon as someone's tackled I'm holding up whether it's four fingers or a card that says eight to tell the broadcaster that was an eight-yard run or a four-yard run or whatever it might have been. Uh, and throughout the game, I'm updating, and I'm also on with the truck and, and making sure that the numbers that they put up on the screen match what the announcer is saying uh, so that everybody looks good. I, I'm, my main responsibility is to make sure that I'm making the announcer look good, and I'm giving him enough information and enough stats uh, and enough correct information so that he doesn't say anything wrong and and uh, and lets the, the the viewers know what's going on in the game appropriately. So, how involved are you in the preparation broadcast process with the play-by-play broadcaster to anticipate? You know, maybe this record will be broken if so and so scores 23 points or. It will be the first time this has happened since X time if somebody scores this many goals. How involved are you with that to come up with those those moments and understand the context of what's going on? We'll, we'll kind of do them separately. It, it depends, obviously, on whether it's a, a local broadcast or a network broadcast. The, the local broadcasters, uh, know they, they know what's going on with their team from day to day. And... Just because of that, they know this stuff is coming. They don't need a statistician to tell them that because they've been tracking it for games. So I, I, I'm more focused on what's going on today. I, obviously, I will know, you know. I'll read the game notes beforehand, and I'll know what the, what the big picture stuff is. And if something during the game is going on that might be a little out of the ordinary, I'll start looking some stuff up during games. But milestones, things like that, they know what's coming. For football, it's a little different because you have like five or six people that are all prepping during the course of the week. And I'm not one of them because you have the graphics person that, that they're building graphics all throughout the week. The, the play-by-play guys, especially for football, put so much time and, and energy into getting their boards ready that all of those notes are already on their board. So I'm not focused on that as well. But on my board, I'll have like individual game highs, individual career highs, so that they're at my fingertips and I don't have to go looking for it, and so that the broadcaster doesn't have to start thinking about whether he has that note. He can, he can worry about the bigger picture stuff, and I'll focus again. If something is going on in that game that – that warrants a little attention. If we know that this guy's closing in on his career high, it's because I have that right in front of me. Nobody has to go look it up. Uh, but for football, again, you have so many people doing all of this prep work throughout the course of the week. By the time you get to the production meeting on Saturday night, all of these graphics, for the most part, are built. And that's because you have, you have a, a broadcast associate that has taken the time to do all that research during the week. And again, certain broadcasters, and, and the guy that I've done the most football with is Kenny Albert. I traveled with him for a number of years. Uh, Kenny, before he was ever doing play-by-play, and we knew he was going to be doing play-by-play, obviously, for many years before he did it, but Kenny, was, Kenny did stats for his father. 
and and Marv was always a stickler for preparation. And I had a chance to do stats with with Marv for many years as well. And Kenny learned from him. So Kenny would do all this research, and he would be handing me notes when we got to a to a football game, saying, "Here's the stuff I found that I want you to watch during the course of the game." So again. I would go through game notes if I saw something interesting in a game note that I wanted to dive into. I might dig a little deeper on Saturday while we're in the production meeting or while I'm on the plane on the way to whatever game I'm working. But my my focus, whether it's network or broadcast, my focus was always what's going on right now. How am I going to make this play-by-play guy look good and and get everything correct? And as long as I did that, I was doing my job the right way. So anytime you're doing live stats, you know, in a live TV or radio situation, occasionally there's going to be mistakes. What are some of them over your career that maybe mortified you at the time, but you can look back on and laugh now? I've gotten numbers wrong. I don't think, I don't think I've ever hit something that I that that lasted beyond a quarter, let's say. Um, th- there was nothing where after the game I was kicking. You know, once in a while you'll have something after the game that kick you kick yourself, but you. I, I don't think I've ever had anything that I that lasted more than just that one kick. Um, I've seen graphics mistakes that I wasn't responsible for that I still remember 20 years later. But as far as numbers, you move on from the numbers because. It's just a number, and if you and if you all dwell on it during the course of the game, you're going to start making more mistakes. And the the broadcasters are so focused on the next play that you have to move on, and you can't compound it. So you know, if I made a mistake on my board, I'll fix it, and then it's on to the next play, and you know, you just have to forget it. You also worked. And correct me if I'm misunderstanding this, doing a little background reading. You also worked as the guy who wrote the ticker at the bottom of the screen for <laughs> FS1 and CBS. It, is that what you did? Am I interpreting that correctly? Uh, you're, you're sort of, you're, you're kind of in the middle. Uh, when, I, when I first started doing ticker stuff, I was doing a lot of the writing, and that was when I was at CBS. Uh, but I also oversaw the whole team and and worked on style guides and things like that. But at CBS, I was focused on writing headlines and, and updating tickers as much as anything. Uh, when I moved over to Fox, the day-to-day responsibilities of putting the, the, the actual content into the ticker uh, moved to the folks that, that worked for me, for lack of a better way of saying it. And I was in charge of overseeing all of the big picture stuff. And at Fox, I didn't. It wasn't just the ticker. We also at that time had what we called the wing, which is the rundown on the right-hand side of the screen and the graphics that you see that come in and out of that stuff. Um, we oversaw that as well. So I was doing a lot of work, working with the different shows, uh, working with um, management to make sure everybody was on the same page and we all got the same message across throughout the course of different shows because each show would have a different message depending on what the tone and what the content was. Uh, but the, the ticker stuff, it all funneled through myself. And, uh, and you know, if, if there was something in there that was wrong or uh, that, that someone didn't like, I was the guy that got that call, unfortunately, whether I was typing it or not. 
that's one of those things that you just never think about, that there's an actual real-life person behind that ticker. Yeah. Just Everyone always... takes that one for granted. You, you <laughs> know, no, nobody realizes, like you said, uh, there, there's always someone that's in charge of putting it in. And when you see a typo or when you see you know, a stat that's incorrect, that's because there's some human error involved. And uh, more so when I was at CBS than at Fox, um, because we were a much smaller staff, this is when it was still so, it's still CBS Sports Network, but this is when we were first really diving into it. It was a very small team, and there was one person on duty at any given time. Whereas at Fox, we had a team of there were probably four or five people on duty at the same time. You had one person watching for news. You had another person actually putting the news in. You had another person who was proofreading the news as it as it was being put in. Uh, then you had someone who was making sure that, that um, if if bigger picture things happened throughout the course of the day, whether it was breaking news or uh, schedule changes or anything like that. And then there was me who was working with the other departments for promos and, and program alerts and, and the like. So you had a whole bunch of people all focused on just the ticker. Whereas, like I said, at CBS, it's one person. And they were watching the news, they were watching the network to see what was going on on the network, and they were putting the content in at the same time. Did you ever make any mistakes on the ticker that you can look back on with, uh, with maybe some fondness now, but that was a pretty serious mistake at that time? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it was, uh, what number Super Bowl was it? It was the Super Bowl with the blackout. Uh, that would have been, what, 46, I'm going to say. That was Ravens and Niners. I might have the number wrong, but it was the one with the blackout in New Orleans. And CBS had that game. And the post game was going to be on CBS Sports Network. So it was the biggest, the single biggest event on CBS Sports Network at that time. And the, the main network, as soon as their quick post game was ending, was, was sending everybody right over to CBS Sports Network. So we were going to all of a sudden get millions of eyes on the network for the first time. And the NFL has certain rules about how you can present their information. You, have, you can't use logos. If you, have a, if you have a sponsor on the screen, you can't have team names. You can only use city names. There are all these different rules that the NFL has. So here it is. The game ends. The, the show comes up, and we have our regular ticker in there with the score and the team names and, and all the bells and whistles. And then all of a sudden, about 90 seconds into the show, we were going to be running a sponsor in the ticker for about two minutes. So we had to very quickly change all of the content in the span of about 15 seconds. Looking back on it, we realize now that it was impossible to do. But we were trying to do it anyway. And the sponsor comes in, and I hit the button to start putting the new content in, and the ticker freezes. And all you see on the screen in the ticker, besides the, the CBS Sports Network logo and the sponsor, is Super Bowl delayed due to blackout during game. And that's it. During, for, for about three minutes during the – post-game show right after the game when we just sent everybody over to this network, 
that's what I have in there, and I can't get anything else in there fast enough to change it because it's just flipping and saying the same thing over and over and over. That was not good. That was really not good. Um, you know, we heard a lot about that from the NFL the next day for obvious reasons. Um, and we learned a valuable lesson at that time, which is if it's that complicated, don't try it right after the Super Bowl. It's that simple. You, know? <laughs> it's, you, you can't do something like that and risk alienating. Um, you know, obviously we didn't know that there was going to be a blackout during the game. We thought we were just going to be able to put the score in real quick and, and build out from there. But it just, we, we got stuck. And it was not a fun car ride home for me at that, that night. Um, and the next few days at work were very unpleasant. But, yes, looking back at it now, not sure laugh is the right way of saying it, but it was a very valuable lesson. So we're going to get into some of the stories from your book now. And I listened to some of the other uh, interviews you did, and they were all focusing on, you know, hey, the Ty- David Tyree helmet catch and um, the Kirk Gibson home run and all the really obvious ones of why the moment is interesting because it's a supremely gifted athlete doing something crazy. What I found really interesting in your book was all the different ways that you could make a memorable moment for a sportscaster. So before we get a little bit deeper into this, what is your opinion? I guess how do how would you define what makes a memorable moment? I, I don't think it's a definable thing, frankly. Um because what's memorable for one person isn't necessarily memorable for another. Obviously, look, Game 7 of the World Series, when the Chicago Cubs won, and the way they won, and all of the drama that was surrounding it, yeah, I, I, think, I, I think that, if you have to define it, I think you're going you're gonna to point at something like that. But there are people that will say that the most memorable thing that they ever saw was because there was a family reason for it. And you'll see that throughout the book as well. Uh, you know, Joe Buck, how many World Series has he called? How many Super Bowls has he called? But one of the five things he put on his list was going to Game 7 of the 82 World Series with his father. And, you'll, again, you see things like that throughout the book, and that's, you know, some, some of this stuff gets very personal. And that's why it's not totally possible to to give an exact definition on that um yes you know when you're watching and when you go to an event you know when you've seen something special and i i wrote i wrote the first version of this book in 2007 and after i did that from that time on whenever i went to something that i kind of knew was in that category, I would turn to someone and I would, and I would say, wow, we just saw something book worthy. And they knew exactly what I was talking about. Uh, and an example I'll use between 2007 and, and now was uh, the, the Final Four in 2008, when Mario Chalmers hit that shot to send the game to overtime. You knew you saw something special there. And it can be a, it can be something as simple as a, a, a dramatic shot. We we've seen that in the Final Four this year. Um, it could be uh, the the Cub game is a perfect example because there are multiple reasons why that 
is is, is special. It's the Cubs winning their first World Series, you know, in over a hundred years. It's the way it happened. It's the game seven itself is usually pretty dramatic. It's the way the game was tied up late in the game with that with the home run. There there were so many different pieces to it, and each one in its own right was pretty special and pretty memorable. Uh, another example I'll use, and this is one that comes up a lot in the book. Obviously, the, the, the Cubs game isn't talked about in the book because it just happened. Uh, but one that does come up in the book is the 2001 World Series. And now you're talking about not just one game, but a seven-game series. And think back to all of the different things that were going on in that series. It was the first World Series after 9-11. It was not just the first World Series after 9-11, but it's in New York. Then game three, George Bush throws out the first pitch, Yankee Stadium. Obviously, there's a lot to talk about when it comes to that. Then you go to games four and games five. Both of them are tied up in the bottom of the, bottom of the ninth on a home run by the Yankees. Game four, you have the Derek Jeter, Mr. November home run. Game seven... You have Mariano Rivera giving up the hit to, to Luis Gonzalez for the Diamondbacks to win the World Series after all of these New York things are going on. There are so many different ways to approach that series that all of them are special and all of them are memorable. So there's, there's no one piece of it that makes it stand out above all the others. And of the ten people that talk about that series in the book – they all tell a different story, and they all find another reason for it to be memorable. That's why this. That's why that's just a question. Maybe I did define it, but I'm not sure there is a real, true definition to it. You know, that's interesting that you brought that up because I had a note and I wanted to talk about that because there was. If you said there were only ten people that wrote about that particular World Series, I guess I would be surprised. And what that showed me is the power that a moment can have in healing you know an individual a nation to a degree and just kind of showed the power of sports in society beyond just wins and losses absolutely i mean sports means a lot to a lot of people and uh and Sports means a lot of different things to a lot of people. It means family. It means excitement. It means drama. It means release from your day-to-day. Uh, th- there are so many different ways to approach it. Uh, you know, you have, you have casual fans. You have hardcore fans. You have wacko fans. And then you have people that are just there to watch an event. And it, it does a lot of different things to a lot of different people. Uh, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm now the father of a seven-year-old boy who, in the last year or so, has really started to latch on to watching games with me and is, is forming his, his own opinions on what teams he wants to root for. And, and it's kind of rewarding to watch that unfold because I know my parents watched that unfold. My parents were not sports fans in any way, shape, or form. Somehow I became a sports nut when I was a kid. I can understand why my son is, and now I'm watching him do it and creating those kinds of memories on on our own. And, and, you know, 
I, I never would have imagined that it would happen. It's, it's, it becomes very special and it becomes very personal. So one of the other interesting aspects of making a moment that I that I related to the most maybe in this book were moments on the journey to success of where these people would end up. And the one that really stands out to me is Michelle Beadle had one in there about working as an intern for the Austin Ice Bats where she was talking about just kind of the purity and love of sports. She was... She didn't know how to ice skate, but she knew how to put up plexiglass boards. You know, just stuff like that that shows the the reflection of the journey instead of the destination type moment that you see with the Super Bowl catches and stuff. You know, one of the things I was trying to capture was in some way, shape, or form showing everybody that and reminding everybody that at heart, everybody that you watch on TV and everybody in this book and everybody that's writing everyone started out as a sports fan and everyone has their own journey and everybody's gotten to where they've gotten in different ways. But at the beginning of each journey, each person in this book was a sports fan. And, and the, the, the example that you just gave is, is the perfect one is, you know, for some people you started really, really, really small. And I'll, I'll use Kenny Albert as a great example. You know, his dad is Marv, and we know that, and, and obviously that creates opportunities. Um, and, and obviously, you know, now we know just how good Kenny is, and he has been for many, many years. But when he first started in, in, in this business, his first job wasn't a network job. His first job wasn't with a, was, wasn't with a, a major league team. He rode the buses in the minor leagues in, in the American Hockey League for two years, before becoming a regular announcer at the NHL level and would do the bus trips around the Maritimes with the Baltimore Skipjacks and, and worked events like that. And, it, again, it's all part of the journey. Uh, every, everyone has a different path. And, you know, the, the success comes to those that stick with it and aren't uh, dissuaded by the pitfalls and the long hours because when you're doing those those first few jobs, and I know you know this, um, it, it's long hours, a lot of work by yourself, and not for a whole lot of money. And when you stick with it and, and, and you're able to, to make it through the, those first, whether it's one job, two jobs, you know, it depends on the individual person. You know, people stick with it for a number of jobs Eventually, you're going to get that break if you if you work hard enough and you stay with it and you understand that the the rewards do come, but you have to earn them. And you know, it, it's it's with everything else. It's the harder you work, the 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 more they come. And and again, Michelle's story, uh, you know, it, it's the Western Hockey League or the Western Professional Hockey League. It's a league that doesn't even exist anymore. And there she was working her butt off for very little money. Because she had that love of wanting to do this. And obviously, in her case, it's paid off. A couple of the other journey towards the top type stories that I really enjoyed that I'd love a little bit more insight on. The first one was Greg Doyle, who was a student at Florida watching Duke versus Kentucky at Steve Spurrier's house when he was the head coach at Florida and having dinner 
and them not knowing that he was a Duke fan, and this was the night of the 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 Christian Leitner shot. Christian Leitner shot, yeah. And they were kind of openly rooting against Duke and going for Kentucky. Yeah, and and of course Steve Spurrier won a Heisman at Duke. Yeah, you know, I mean uh, it's uh, it it's interesting to hear those kinds of stories, and it it reminds you once again it, it's a journey, like you said, and. Uh, You'll see other stories in the book from a couple other people talking about memories and experiences they've had working at college papers or while they were in high school. And you have to get your feet you have to get your feet wet somewhere. You have to get that start somewhere. I I had I had my epiphany that I wanted to enter the, the the sports business when I was in college. And I went and I joined. As soon as I had that moment, I went and joined the radio station and I joined the newspaper. And that's those are experiences that that I'll never forget. And I went to NYU. We didn't have a big staff at either of those places, so I was able to take advantage of those opportunities. Another kind of recurring theme in the book on the stories that people told were outside events defining the game more than the game itself, and that's the outside events making it memorable. And you touched on that a little bit with kind of going over the healing power of sports with the first World Series after 9-11, but there's a couple other instances that I wanted to go that were frequently talked about. One of them, there was a couple different guys, Scott Farrell and Chris Myers, who talked about being at the Atlanta Olympic bombing. Give us a little perspective into those stories. Well, it, it's it's ironic that you bring that one up. I was actually I was actually there as well. I left the park just before it happened. Um, my sister at that time actually lived in Atlanta, and I was down there for the weekend. And we left the park. We were in the subway station when it happened. We didn't even know. So to hear people talk about it from inside the park, you know, ten minutes after we would have been there. Uh, it, you know, chaos. That's the only way to describe it. And and I have a funny feeling you might be mentioning right after this the the San Francisco earthquake. Uh, it, another another moment that a number of people talk about that, you know, you didn't expect it to happen. It was tragic, and at the same time, you're never going to forget that. Not every sports moment, that, not every moment in people's careers, are going to be memorable because they're positive and you know the 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 bombing in atlanta we know the story Uh, i i you know being in that park 10 minutes before it happened i know how excited everybody was in there um it was a giant party the entire park was one massive party and you would go from place to place and there was music and there were bands and there were bars and there were djs and uh, there were thousands upon thousands of people there. So for it to go from that to having a bomb go off, to having everybody have to get out of the park as quickly as possible because nobody knew what was going on, I'm happy I left 10 minutes earlier. I'm happy I was gone when, when I was gone because I, I can only imagine what it was like to have physically been inside the park like those two guys were. You know, Scott, has a, Scott Farrell has a little different take on everything, as you've read in his list. Um, and you know, and his his thought after after everything happened was to 
grab some beers and go and have some drinks and enjoy himself. Whereas Chris obviously was doing reports all night for ESPN and was focused on the actual news side of things. It's uh, you know it's two very different takes on 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 a night that you know a lot of people choose to forget because it's it's not a pleasant memory. If you had been there for ten more minutes and had been a part of, I don't want to say a part, but been been around, would you have had the audacity? To run in and take free beer? No, <laughs> absolutely not. I would have, I would have gone right to the subway station like we did. You know, it, again, I was with my sister, and you know, we woke up the next morning. We didn't, we didn't know it happened until the phone rang at seven o'clock the next morning, and our parents called us to make sure we were okay. And our response was, "Yeah, why wouldn't we be?" And they're like, "Turn on the news." Uh, I would have gotten out of there. Um, you know, as someone who lived in New York City on 9-11, um, happily I wasn't anywhere near the World Trade Center. My now wife, we had it was not too long before we met, was actually um, just walking out of a subway station a, a few blocks away from the, the World Trade Center uh, when it happened. But as someone who lived in New York City on 9-11, you have a different appreciation now for for these kinds of moments. You, you never want to experience them. You never want to ha- see anything like this. Um, and that goes without saying. But you know, when it hits close to home, it's scary. And when it gets that scary, the first thing you got to do is get, away, is get as far away as you can and then worry about everything else. Then you go into the bar and you find something to drink. Or, you know, I, I certainly wouldn't have been running around looking for beers inside the park at that point. I was I would have gotten the heck out of there. So when you're dealing with the greatest storytellers that we know both in the written word and on air like you were for this book, nobody's story has ever gotten worse as time transpired. Did you get the feeling with anybody that maybe they were exaggerating their role in the story or taking their own liberties on how things have changed while this was going on? I don't, I don't think so. Um, because, because of the nature of the majority of these stories, we know what happened. Uh, so it's hard, to, it's hard to, to exaggerate those parts of it. Um, you know, I think we all in our own minds will change certain things in stories as we get older and it depends on how we remember them whether we remember them fondly or not uh if we remember them fondly we might exaggerate some of the details but in in cases like this i certainly hope nobody did um and i but i didn't get the sense that that was the case either because the, these were fun conversations. There was no pressure on anybody to um, to, to say anything specific. I wanted everybody to just sit back and have some fun and and, and tell me their their feelings. I, I wanted um, you know I, the facts were going to be the facts no matter what. So you know if you were sitting in this location, obviously I can't exactly uh, confirm that. But there's no reason to change something like that. Um, 
I don't I don't think anybody did anything like that. I, I again, I didn't get the sense of it at all. Another thing that interested me with the book is how many announcers who have covered tons and tons of championship games, you know, in the NBA, the NFL, the NHL, and some of their and one of their top 5 moments was the Olympics of some sort. And whether that was covering the Dream Team or covering Rulon Gardner's uh, upset of the Russian guy, I don't remember what his name is, covering Corral, Michael Phelps yeah. or Usain Bolt, the Olympics seemed to stand out in a lot of people's heads. What Were you surprised at that, and why do you think that was? No, I wasn't surprised, uh, simply because the Olympics really are tailor-made for stories like this. If you're looking for someone to talk about something that they're never going to forget, uh, and having been to two Olympics, and uh, I was at the Atlanta one, as I mentioned, I was there for four days, but I, was at, I did Athens. I worked for NBC in Athens and was there for a month and got to see quite a few events. Um, you're, you're, you're experiencing events and sports that you're not necessarily used to covering. And the the human nature that comes through in those sports, those smaller sports, whether it's wrestling or weightlifting, uh, track and field and swimming are obviously the marquee ones, and, and uh, you know, basketball and, and gymnastics. But at the end of the day, these are still outside of the dream teams. These these aren't people you watch on a regular basis. Um, and these aren't people that are being covered on a regular basis. So the human, the human nature and, and those kinds of stories come through. And, and one of the examples you mentioned was, was the Rulon garner um, Karelin match. And Joe Posnanski tells the story about that in the book. He's not the only one, but he's, he talks about that event in the book. And when he covered that, if, if, you, if you go back and, and, and do some of, the, some of the research that I did for that specific one, um, when, when Joe wrote his story after covering that event, it's now recognized as one of the great pieces of American sports journalism in the last 20 to 30 years because he acknowledges the fact, I don't know anything about this sport and I just saw something that was so memorable that captured so many different emotions and ended up, without me, walking, without me walking in knowing this, ended up being one of the biggest upsets in that sport's history. And everybody in the arena knowing it, me not knowing it until someone explained to me what just happened, you roll all that up and you say, wow, you know, the, the Olympics, that happens all the time that happens all the time in the olympics and again i'm putting aside for a minute i'm putting aside the usain bolt stuff and the dream teams you know it's the it's the it's the corellans a story i like to tell and you know i'm not a big fan as, as we were talking before the show i'm not a big fan of of going into my stuff but in this case i will because it's it's relevant when i was in athens i tried to see as many different events as i could because I didn't know if I was going to get back to an Olympics in that kind of role where I was able to just kind of wander around when, I, when the sport that I was working on wasn't going on. And on the last Saturday night, I think it was the last Saturday night of the Olympics, 
I went to heavyweight weightlifting. And I had never been to weightlifting in my life. I didn't know what was going on. I just wanted to, again, I just wanted to go see as many different events as I could. I did not know going into the building that night that the Michael Jordan of Greece was a heavyweight weightlifter. His name was Piros Dimas. And he was on billboards all over the city, and I didn't even realize. And he had announced before the Olympics that he was retiring once the games were over. So here I am in this building. It is jam-packed. And everybody, whenever Dimas comes out onto the, onto the stage to do his lifting, the place goes crazy. And again, I, I only knew, I thought they, all right, they're rooting for the Greek guy. You know, they, that makes sense. He ends up finishing and winning the bronze. And again, he had announced his retirement before the, the Olympics had started. So after his last lift, he took his shoes off and he left them on the mat, which is the tradition. He, again, he ends up finishing with the bronze. He comes out for the, the medal ceremony. He brings his kids out. And now the place just loses it. And everybody is crying. And now everybody is singing. And now everybody is having one giant party, and he's up there celebrating with his kids. And it was probably the most emotional moment I've ever seen at a sporting event, period, end of story. I, I, I was just floored by all of, this, all of this emotion and all of this love that was going on out there. And obviously during the medal ceremony, they're not playing the Greek anthem, but it didn't matter. Everybody was singing the Greek national anthem. Everybody was crying. Everybody was singing. It, it, was, it was just an incredible moment. And that's what the Olympics are. And that's why the Olympics get so much attention in, in stories like everybody tells. Because, yeah, you have the dream team, and it's great, and... and that, that first dream team obviously was, was historic and, and warrants every bit of attention it gets. But it's those, it's those stories that nobody else knows that come out of nowhere and surprise you that really, that's what, that's what, again, that's what the Olympics are all about. And that's what going to the Olympics and experiencing an Olympics is all about. That's an excellent story, and right now we're at 42 minutes. Um, are you able to continue? Or yeah, let's keep, to... we can go a little bit more. Okay, yeah, sure. so the opposite perspectives and seeing people's different takes and different perspectives on the same event is one of the really interesting parts of this book. And the one that jumped out at me the most was Mike Hill, who was covering Tennessee, for the Music City Miracle where they had the crazy lateral play uh, on the last play of the game to make it to the Super Bowl, where he was going crazy, running down the field, jumping up and down. And then Matt, I, I'm probably going to screw up this name. Matt Yaloff. Yeah. Matt Yaloff covering the game for the Bills and being all ready for the questions for Wade Phillips. And instead, he has to sit outside his office and hear him just yell and scream and melt down in his office. It's really crazy the vast um, spectrum of emotions that are covered in sports moments. It really is, and, and that's a great example of, uh, of of two people being at the same event and telling completely different stories, and even removing the emotion from it for a minute and seeing completely different perspectives, and each one is there to cover a different team. Uh, there, there's a few events like that 
Um, Matt Yaloff is actually involved in another one, and, 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 and Sam Ryan tells this story. I heard her tell the story on, on a podcast last week, a Cincinnati Reds podcast. Um, not that they were involved in the game, but the 2011 World Series Game 6, the David Freeze game, where she was covering the Cardinals and Matt Yaloff was covering the Rangers, and they were both responsible. You know, one of whoever won, one was going to be one was going to be responsible for the Rangers if they won, and one was going to be responsible for the Cardinals if they won. And both of them going back and forth throughout the course of the game because at one point it looked like the Cardinals were going to win, and then the Rangers were going to win, and then Freeze ties up the game in the bottom of the ninth, and we go to the extra innings and all the Josh Hamilton stuff, and and the swings of emotions back and forth. And here are these the, these two reporters both waiting for this game to end, not knowing what they're going to do the moment it ends because because of their assignments. Um, I, another great example of that is is the Kirk Gibson game. And you can compare the stories. You have Marv Albert was in the A's dugout. You have Bob Costas was in the Dodgers dugout. And they're both talking about the same event and how it changes so dramatically. And obviously the Kirk Gibson home run is, is one of the most dramatic moments in sports history. And here, here are two completely different perspective of, perspectives of it because – one of them has to cover the winners that they thought they were going to lose, and one of them has to cover the losers that thought they were going to win. Um, and, and, you know, look, as sports fans, we, we all live to see those moments and hope that we get to see them on television, let alone be in the building for them. And we know what that emotional roller coaster is as we're watching the game. To, ha- to have your next reporting assignment be based on those ups and downs and and have your evening be based on that up and down and how you react to it i'm kind of happy i'm never in that position because those those are unenviable tasks certainly and one of the things that most of these people have in common is that despite the difficulty of the job, they all capture the moment, if not perfectly, highly competently. What do you see in these broadcasters, in these writers, that makes them capable of capturing the moment the way they do uh, on a consistent basis? I think they're all prepared for it. They all know, um, even if they don't know what's going to happen, and even if they don't know how it's going to happen. Uh, they're, they're all ready for that moment to happen, whatever it might be. And they'll have certain questions ready to go. And if they use them, great. But if they don't use them, they know how to take those questions and spin them in the right way. And that's because they're prepared. Um, it's just like with everything else in, in life. It's, it's all hard work and it's all knowing how to how to go with the flow and and be able to change on the fly. I mean, how many times in life do we all have to make adjustments at the very last second on certain things? And we're not on TV doing it, we're not on the radio doing it, but we all have to do it. Uh they just happen to have to do it while the cameras are rolling. And if you're not prepared going into the game, forget about the last inning. If you're not prepared going into the game, 
you're not going to be able to handle that last moment. So the final kind of category that I kind of came up with for a criteria that makes a memorable moment was just novelty or bizarreness. And there's a couple of stories in here that stand out as just weird and bizarre. And I want you to go into two of them and your thoughts. The first one was fan man parasailing, not parasailing, but hang gliding, whatever he was doing <laughs> oh, yep, yep, in the, in, in the middle man, of yep. an outdoor boxing match and then ending up in Louis Farrakhan's posse and just getting beaten to a pulp. And the other one was Charlie Steiner getting in a fight with a guy at Wimbledon, which seems like <laughs> the last place in the world that you would ever hear about somebody getting in a fight. Well, the fan man one, we all know that one. I mean, that's, that was one. We, we, so many people were watching that boxing match when that happened. I mean, that was, that was a marquee fight. And that was when heavyweight boxing was still heavyweight boxing. It was, it was an attraction. So that fight was an attraction, and that crowd was loaded with so many celebrities. And here's this guy jumping out of a plane and landing in a, you know, wanting to parachute into the ring and missing the ring and ending up in, in the middle of Farrakhan's posse. And yeah, I, if, I were the, if I was his security, I probably would have been throwing punches at the guy as well. I don't know what's going on, and nobody in the building knows what's going on. Uh, I, I, that's probably the appropriate response in a case like that, especially as someone as polarizing as Farrakhan was. Um, it, it, it's still, I mean, you, you can find video of that and watch the crowd. Uh, it, it, everybody was so stunned. Nobody knew what to do. And it wasn't a tragic moment like we talked about earlier, um, like, you know, like, the, like the bombing in the park or the, or the earthquake. But it, it's, it's still one of those moments where it, it, it was so random and so different and so unexpected and had nothing to do with what was going on in the event that really nobody knew what to do. And, and, and if I was a security guy, yes, I think I probably would have been throwing punches too. Uh, and the other one that you mentioned um, – Charlie Steiner's fight, that's, you know, that's, that's one of the rare moments in this entire book where the, where the story is about the, the person telling it as opposed to the event. And this was back in the John McEnroe heyday. And, you know, London tabloids, I mean, this is 35 years later, London tabloids are still all about uh, gossip. And, um, you know, it, it, think, of, think of TMZ today. But 35 years ago, and even more vicious and competitive. That's what the London tabloids were, and still are. And John McEnroe was was maybe the most polarizing athlete at that time. You know, you either loved him or you hated him. Most people hated him, especially his behavior. But he was the angry Yankee for all of the folks on the other side of the pond in London. And... You know, the American writers were there to do their job and report on stuff and report on results. And the tabloids from London would jam the press room trying to irritate McEnroe as much as they could because they knew they could and they knew how he reacted to it. So they took advantage of it. And Charlie Steiner and this writer from the tabloid end up getting into a fight because McEnroe doesn't want to answer those questions anymore and storms out of 
a press conference, and now Charlie Steiner and the Americans can't do their job. And that's what the fight was about. And, and since then, uh, and, and Charlie says this in the book, and, and you know, you know, you can go back and now read stories about it. You know, and they've mended fences, and you can laugh about it now. But it was pretty serious back then. And, and you know, it was just a matter of an American wanting to do his job, and a tabloid writer from London wanting to do his job, and the two jobs and, and what they're both trying to accomplish are at completely opposite ends of the spectrum. Uh, which can cause some problems at times. It would have been really interesting to get that British writer's side of that story and see who said who won the fight. That's the one you got to do for the next book. <laughs> I know, I, Charlie sent me some links after we talked um, to help me with the research on that one. And, and I'm pretty sure if I were to go back and look at some of those stories... Um, you know, now they probably laugh again. They they laugh. They certainly laugh about it now, and they've posed for pictures and and whatnot. Um, there there was a bit of an age difference between the two of them, so I, I'm I'm not quite sure the 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 tabloid writer would uh, disagree with who won that fight. All right. Well, there's one other story that you tell in just about every interview that I've listened to of you, and I want to I want to I want to complain about it because. I think I'm the only person in the world who really doesn't like the movie Rudy, and that's one of your favorite stories, and I'm going to let you defend it, because I, I'm tired of hearing about it. Well, I'm not, I'm, I'm not going to defend anything. Fair you know, enough. This, this, you know, Terry Gannon tells the story um, and insists that, that Rudy had a sack at the end of that game, even though Joe Montana has said he didn't. Um, I'll take I'll take Terry's side on that. Uh, whether you like the movie or not, uh, just the fact, and, and this is why I tell the story, just the fact that someone in our business was actually at that game and was that not at that game for work purposes, but was sitting in the stands because he was because he knew Rudy and was friends with him. I, I, that's what makes that story so fascinating to me. Is I, and when when I talked to Terry uh, and was doing the interview, I didn't know this. Uh, and, and a buddy of mine actually told me afterwards, you, "How did you not know that?" I didn't know that. I, I didn't. I had no idea I was getting that story. Um, and I was thrilled and excited that I did because it, it's just it's just neat. Whether you, again, whether you like the movie or not, it's just a neat story. Hey, I have taken enough of your time for today. Um, I want to give you a minute to just let everyone know how they can buy your book, because I sure enjoyed it, and I'm sure a lot of our listeners could. And the floor is yours. I appreciate it, Logan. Thank you. It's, it's available uh, Barnes & Nobles across the country. And on Amazon, which is usually the easiest place to, to buy this kind of stuff, and it's uh, easy to find on Amazon. And um, you know, I hope everybody checks it out. You can follow along with me on Twitter at, at the Merle. That's T H E M I R L. Uh, and I hope you all do. And, and again, I hope everybody goes out. I think it's a great, great holiday gift, a great stocking stuffer. Um, you know, I, I hope everybody enjoys it. It certainly sounds like you did, Logan, and I appreciate that, and I appreciate 
all all the questions. It, this was this this was a more thought provoking conversation than I've had most of the way, and it was a great change of pace, and I loved it. All right. Well, I sure I certainly appreciate that. And we will send you on your way. Thanks, everybody, for tuning in to the Say the Damn Score podcast. You can follow the show on iTunes, on Stitcher. We're now on Google Play Music. You can also just go to saythedamnscore.com and sign up for email updates on the webpage or follow me on Twitter at Radio underscore Logan or Facebook at facebook.com slash saythedamnscore. Thanks for tuning in, and next time you're on the air, Say the Damn Score just a little bit more.